May we read together a passage that every navigator knows very well, but from which I trust the Lord can still say something fresh to us. And that passage is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, reading from verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every infirmity. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, into his harvest. What I have to say about this passage this morning is not so much concerned with the laborers as with the sheep. The several topics have been suggested to me for this conference by the conveners, and my first message will deal with reaching the lost. You'll notice the motto of the conference up here, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. We have been made stewards of the mystery of God. We have been given responsibility for the sheep, the sheep who have gone astray. Reaching the lost, that's one of the intermediate objectives of navigators. Lorne pointed out what the ultimate objective is. But the ultimate objective will never be achieved unless the intermediate objective is achieved and the lost are reached for Christ. Now, I speak sincerely when I say that I feel very ill-qualified to speak on this subject. Because while I believe what I say very firmly, Yet my own degree of concern is so tepid compared with what it ought to be in the light of the terrible need of those who are without Christ. And I trust that the Lord will give both to me and to you a concern that is more like his own. Recently, I received a letter from James Hudson Taylor III, who is the General Director of our mission, the Overseas Missionary Fellowship now, great-grandson of Hudson Taylor, and he made this pregnant observation. He said, Our modern emphases in the church are so experience-orientated, so centered on happiness and warm feelings instead of holiness and hard thinking, that the faith of some Christians is nearer the, to the Buddhist search for peace in the environment than to the message of the cross in history. I think that's a tremendous statement. And I think, alas, it's very true. I link with that a statement by A.W. Tozer, who said most of us would sooner be happy than feel the wounds of other people's sorrows. Now, if these estimates are true, and I believe they are, then if we are to make any significant impact 
on the bruised and bleeding communities in which God has placed us, then we must be willing to share the passion and the compassion of our Lord. Reaching the lost, the very title presupposes that men and women without Christ are lost. But today that cannot be taken for granted. It can't be taken for granted even in evangelical circles that everybody believes that men and women are lost without Christ. There is a kind of creeping universalism that has come into our churches and an ill-defined optimism that somehow or other, whether people hear the gospel, repent and believe or not, somehow or other in the end God is so good that everything will be all right. Robert E. Spear, who was the secretary of the Presbyterian Board of Missions for many years in earlier days, said this. He said, I believe that one reason why, the mission, why missionary recruitment is lagging in the Western world is that Christian people are no longer gripped by a burning conviction that men everywhere are lost without Christ. The sense of urgency, of immediate danger, of a crisis in salvation has largely disappeared. Now I think if you listen to the preaching of today, you will find that that in large measure is true. And the people of our generation are no longer gripped by the fact that men and women without Christ are lost. And yet, as we know, that has a very strong biblical basis. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He wouldn't have had to seek them if they hadn't been lost. You only seek for what is lost. They are already lost. And of course, in John 3.19, it says so clearly that... Uh, they are condemned already. He that believeth not is condemned already. Not will be condemned in the future. They are condemned already. And the men and women whom we meet from day to day without Christ are already under the condemnation of God. Have you noticed that the word perish in John 3.16 is really the pivotal word in the verse? If men and women were not perishing, there would have been no necessity for God to demonstrate his love by giving his son. And that is the pivotal word in the verse. And yet, that's not the word that's emphasized. The word that's emphasized is love, and that's, that's true. But that love would never have needed to be manifested by giving Christ on the cross were men and women not perishing. And the word perish is exactly the same as the word destroyed in Matthew 10:28, where our Lord said, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The idea behind destroy there, of course, is not uh, merely not the, the idea of the, ab the uh, abolition of existence. It means waste and ruin. And a person who is lost is a, having a life that is wasted, a life that is ruined now, and in the future, 
there lies judgment ahead because the word describes not only a present condition but a future disaster. There is hell that lies ahead. And if man's lost condition demands a sacrifice so great as the agony and the anguish that our Lord endured on the cross, then how serious is that condition? In his book, Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer said this, The only way we can get rid of the lostness of man is to do away with the holiness of God or with the significance of man. If you give up the holiness of God, you have no absolutes and morality is a zero. If you give up the significance of man, man becomes a zero. If you want a significant man with absolutes, morality, and meaning, then you have what God insists on, that God will judge righteously. Men and women without Christ are lost. They are under the judgment of God. When it comes to the spiritual condition of the heathen, again, there is a great lack of conviction, even in evangelical circles, that the heathen who have not heard of Christ, who have never embraced Christ, are lost. And some people will say, and I've had them say to me, why, I can't believe for a moment that God would allow people to be lost simply because they've not heard the gospel. Well, I say, I I agree with you very fully. I don't believe for a moment that people are lost because they haven't heard the gospel. God punishes guilt. He doesn't punish ignorance. Why? Are the heathen without Christ lost? For the same reason as Americans are lost. They are sinners. And God says there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are sinners, sinful men, as we are. And they need the salvation that we do. I'd like to pose a few relevant questions, the answers to which I believe taken together seem to teach that heathen, men and women, without Christ, are lost. First, do you know any scripture that clearly affirms that there is salvation from, for the heathen apart from hearing, apart from believing in a Christ of whom they've heard. If so, what is that scripture? Was Christ's statement, I am the way, relative or absolute? Is there some other way? Can they come to the Father through a Christ of whom they have not heard? No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Did Jesus have an unrevealed exception to what he said when he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? 
Was Paul guilty of a heartless casuistry when he asked those four questions in Romans 10? How shall they call on one they have not believed in? And how shall they believe in one of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? In those questions, does not Paul seem to teach that they must hear of Christ and believe on him if they are to be saved? Some years ago, I was up in the mountains in in uh, the Philippines. And uh, I was in a little bamboo hut where one of our missionaries was working and we heard a cough outside. And when I went to the top of the stairway, there was a, an old lady. She was just almost skin and bone. She was dressed in very ragged clothes, but she had a very beautiful smile. And she had... Uh, a big bunch of bananas for the poor, needy missionary visitor. She needed the bananas. I didn't. But uh, she came up into the house, and she was the first woman of this tribe to come to the Lord. They'd never had the gospel. And when this old lady, Grandma Bulaklak, was being baptized, the man who baptized her said this. He said, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose for your justification? She said, of course I do. And wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? What a, what a challenge. Wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? You see, she couldn't believe because she hadn't heard. Almost the moment she heard, she believed, but she had seen the whole of her generation die. She was the last one, and they'd never heard. So I don't think Paul was guilty of a heartless casuistry. He was speaking about something that to him was intensely real. What did Paul mean when he said to the Ephesians that formerly they were without God and without hope in the world. Was there another hope? Was John misled when he said idolaters shall have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone? Is there a warrant for believing that the names of the heathen are automatically written in the Lamb's book of life? If so, what about man's free will? I think that if you take all these things together, you have at least a prima facie case for believing that we who have been entrusted with the gospel have a tremendous responsibility to see that somehow to the very limit of our powers, we bring it to them. Now, how are they to be reached? John Ruskin, the poet and art critic, said that there were three qualities necessary in a good artist. He must have an eye to see, 
a heart to feel, and a hand to perform. He must have an eye to see the beauty of the scene or the subject that he wants to paint. He's got to have a heart that will register the appeal of what his eye sees. And then he must have a hand with which he can transfer what his eye sees and his heart feels to canvas. And I believe that those three things are necessary for the winner of souls. An eye to see. An eye to see the spiritual need of men. Physical need is obvious. It arouses a spontaneous response. You see an accident. Immediately you go into action. You see, you feel, you act. But spiritual need is not so obvious. And yet, how real it is. How do we get, how do we see spiritual need? You can't see it with your physical eyes. It's a matter of revelation. We need to have spirit-anointed eyes so that in ordinary men and women we can see men and women who are in deep spiritual need. You remember in the case of Abraham, Abraham was talking with God and God said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? And God anointed Abraham's eyes and he saw. What did he see? He saw the impending doom of Sodom and Gomorrah. He felt. And what did he do? It drove him to earnest intercession. He did something about it. And he prayed. Unfortunately, his prayer was limited. But never mind. He was moved. He got that vision in secret communion with God. Now, I think that's where we get it. That's where we get a heart concern. By keeping company with the Christ of compassion. When our Lord was on the Mount of Olives and he looked out over the city of Jerusalem, he could see with his anointed eye the impending judgment on that city. He looked down 40 years when the armies of Titus were going to come and where the streets of Jerusalem would flow with blood. He saw. He felt. And what happened? He wept. He was concerned. And of course he did more than weep. He had a heart to feel. It's so easy to be engrossed with our own little affairs and to be almost callously indifferent. And this challenges my own heart. Callously indifferent to spiritual need of people round about us. Sympathy, compassion, is the language of the heart. It's understood in any language, any culture, any race. People automatically know if you love them. And in missionary work, 
Peoples in other lands will forgive the foreigner any number of mistakes if they love him. And they know, they understand. Sympathy is the language of the heart. And in the passage we read together, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. And the word compassion is just a Latin form of the Greek, the Greek form sympathy. They just mean exactly the same thing. It doesn't mean to be sorry for. It doesn't mean to pity. It means to suffer together with. I remember the first time I visited India. I went to Bombay. We arrived there about 2 o'clock in the morning and my wife and I walked down the streets to the hotel where we were going to stay. It was a cold, very cold night. And there on the pavements were people dressed in their light muslin garments, lying there, nowhere to go, just lying on the pavement, and you stepped over the bodies to get to your hotel with all its luxury. I felt very sorry with them. I was moved with pity. But I did nothing about it. An eye to see, a heart to feel, but no hand to perform. I did nothing about it. I don't know that I could have done anything about it. But when the Lord saw and felt, he did something about it. He had compassion. It was when he saw the crowds that he had the compassion. In our Lord's day, it's estimated there would be 250 million people on earth. Today there are 16 times as many as when Jesus walked the earth. If it was a crowded world when he saw it, what kind of a world is it now? This was brought home to me with a, with a bump three or four years ago. I'd been asked to give the closing missionary message at the uh, Keswick Convention in England. And two or three days beforehand, Michael Griffiths, who was my successor in the OMF, said to me, how long is it since you spoke at Keswick last time? I thought back, I said, 32 years. And he paused for a moment. And then he said, do you know that since you last spoke at Keswick, the population of the world has doubled? Now, I, I followed population figures. But when he put it into that little time span in part of my life, and the population of the world has doubled in less than half of my lifetime, what a crowded world it is. What a need of reaching the lost. What a tremendous burden of responsibility it places upon us of this generation. Virgil Gerber had an article in the Team magazine in which he pointed out that almost half the people who have ever lived on this globe are alive today. And we of this generation have the responsibility of getting the gospel out to those Vast crowds of people. When Jesus 
saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. Crowds appear differently to different eyes. When a politician sees a crowd, you know what he sees, so many potential votes. When a businessman sees a crowd, he sees so many potential customers. When an educator sees a crowd, he sees so many potential students. When a communist sees a crowd, he sees so many potential agitators. Most people in crowds see somebody they can, something they can exploit. When Jesus saw the crowds, he didn't see something he could exploit. He saw people whom he could bless. And he was moved with compassion. And with him it was no passing emotion. It wasn't something that evaporated in a few moments. It was something that culminated in the great sacrifice of the ages. You know, I think that TV has vitiated our emotions. You see in TV a terrible holocaust. And you say, isn't it awful? And the next minute you switch on to a, and there's a soap opera. And we get so used to it. The commercial comes on. And you, 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 we're so, we become so superficial. We don't allow things to soak in long enough to deeply influence and affect us. And it means that we are a superficial generation. We have the emotions, but they don't last. They don't go deep enough to radically affect our wills and our action. And yet, it must do that. When Jesus saw the people, he saw them harassed and helpless, bewildered, struck down by cruelty, by oppression. And he suffered with them. You know what the verse of the hymn says? He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. That's what he did. He suffered with us before he suffered for us. He entered into all our experiences. He saw them as shepherdless. Sheep without a shepherd. Is there anything more helpless than a sheep? It's got no weapon for defense. It's got no weapon for offense. It's got no sense of direction. A more helpless animal, it would be hard to find. And as Jesus looked out into that crowd, those, that was what he saw. There they were, defenseless against the power of the adversary and the rapacious people that were preying upon them. Lost their way and not, not able to find it. And his heart was moved with compassion. No one to minister to their spiritual needs. My brothers and sisters, this is our unique privilege. We have been entrusted with the gospel. A gospel that can change the destiny of men and women from hell to heaven. Our Lord gave his disciples a salutary lesson in, on compassion in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
You remember it was the good Samaritan who had compassion on the man who was wounded. When you think of the reaction of the different characters, it's very interesting. The thieves saw a victim whom they could exploit. The priest and the Levite, who were religious workers, they were going to worship and to sacrifice, they saw in him a nuisance to ignore. The lawyer who sparked the story saw in him a problem to discuss. He enjoyed discussing abstract problems. Probably he was on a way to a seminar on loving one's neighbor. The innkeeper saw a customer on whom he could make a profit. But it remained for the despised, culturally despised Samaritan to see in him a needy neighbor whom he could serve, although he hated Jews. What a terrific story that was. And how tremendously our Lord forced home the lesson. He said to that man, now who was neighbor? The man said, oh, the man who showed compassion. And Jesus said, you go and do the same. You go and do that. Here was a man, it was the Samaritan, who saw, felt, acted. He poured in oil and wine. He bound him up. He put him on the horse. He paid the innkeeper. He was the one who had compassion. Go and do likewise. He had a hand to perform. But Jesus saw the people not only with an eye of sympathy, he also saw with an eye of appreciation. Suddenly, the picture changes, the figure changes, and the crowds become a vast field with harvest ready to be reaped. A wonderful harvest field. You know, you don't reap weeds, do you? You only reap what's valuable. And as our Lord looked out on that crowd, he saw the wonderful potential in them. As you look out on your community ministry, what potential there is there? A harvest ripe to be reaped with tremendous possibilities if only God got hold of those lives. I was in Scotland two or three years ago and I stayed with a man who was a wheat farmer. His sole means of livelihood was through his wheat. And he had a large farm he had a wonderful crop of wheat, but when it came to reaping time, the weather was consistently wet, and it was almost impossible to get the, bring the harvest in. But when the weather eased up a little and the crop got a little dry, didn't matter whether it was midnight or whenever it was, immediately everybody goes out, gets the machines, get the harvest before it rots and is lost. Paul says, never lose your sense of urgency. The harvest is there. It's ripe for reaping. But I, I, I couldn't help but be impressed by the tremendous earnestness of those people 
to get the harvest in before it was too late. And I believe that God would say the same to us. There's the harvest. It's there to be reaped, but it won't always be there. The harvest very quickly is lost. It doesn't wait anyone's convenience. And we could be guilty of culpable neglect if through our failure we don't bring the gospel to these people. Our Lord expressed his compassion in tears. Have you ever thought of that? I read an article many years ago by William Booth Cliburn, and the title was this, The Curse of a Dry-Eyed Christianity. Well, mine's too dry-eyed. I remember standing outside the walls of Jerusalem, and the Arab guide who was with me directed my attention to cross the valley to a little building with a cupola. And he said, that is the place where uh, the Lord Jesus was reputed to have wept over Jerusalem. And I thought of that as I looked, I thought of Jesus looking out over the city, probably different from what, from what it was, is now, but nevertheless, as he looked, he saw, he felt, and then the tears rained down his cheeks. What a concept, a weeping God. That's a concept that's in no other religion. A weeping God. The glory of God expressed in salty tears running down the face of the Son of God. That's concern. He knew what was coming. And he was concerned, Oh, how often would I have gathered you as a hen doth gather her chickens under her wings. And you would not. That was a heart of deep concern. Imagine the amazement of the angels to see the Lord of glory crying. They weren't synthetic TV tears. They were tears of heart concern. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's still the same. He's still concerned. Paul partook of the spirit of his master. In Acts 20, 31, he says, For three years I never stopped warning you night and day with tears. That's earnestness. That's concern. No wonder... He saw such a harvest. You remember the story of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, when he received a letter from one of his officers saying that he had done everything he could and nothing had happened, the people hadn't responded. William Booth sent a telegram back, try tears, try tears. Well, you can't always turn them on, can you? Where do you get tears? Would it not be in company with the compassionate Christ who shed the tears? 
Do we share our Lord's compassion as we move in it out? I know you feel as I do when you think of this subject, how, how little we feel comparatively and we want to know more about it. But compassionate feeling, compassion, finds its highest expression in compassionate action. It must, love must find expression. I preached in a church in Scotland many years ago, the Harper Memorial Church. And I preached in a church in Canada, the uh, Hamilton Tabernacle. And those two places have a connection. The Harper Memorial Church was a church erected in memory of John Harper. He was a great soul winner, a man who was a great lover of men. And uh, he had a wonderful ministry in Scotland. Then he was called to be the minister of Moody Church in Chicago. And he traveled across the Atlantic in the Titanic, the unsinkable ship. A year or two afterwards, a young man was speaking in the, the tabernacle, the Philpot Tabernacle in uh, Hamilton, uh, in Canada. And he told this story. He said, I was on board the Titanic when it struck the iceberg and when it sank. And he said, I was thrown with others into the icy waters of the Atlantic and I clung to a piece of wood. And we were floating about there in those, in those terrible waters. And he said, I heard a voice saying, Are you saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he said, The voice would kind of hear it from somewhere else. There was a man who also was clinging to some wood and he was going from one to another asking them if they were saved. And he came to me and he said, Is your soul saved? And I said, No, I'm afraid it's not. He said, Then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he said, We drifted apart and I heard him speaking to others. He said, And then we came together again and he saw who I was. The, the, the lights on the ship apparently were still going. He saw who I was. He says, Is your soul saved yet? And I said, No, it's not. And he said, Then believe on the Lord now. And he said, there with a mile of water beneath me, I believed on the Lord, and here I am today. That man was John Harper. He said, then I heard the voice getting fainter and fainter, and then all of a sudden I heard him say, I'm going down, I'm going down. And then, no, I'm going up. And he said, <laughs> the voice was silent. I wonder what I'd have been thinking about if I'd been in the water. Would I have been concerned about my own self or about lost souls? May God give to me especially a deeper concern for the souls of men.